because our kids are seeing us text and they're not hearing us on the phone, they don't have the same information about our social worlds that we had about our parents' social world. It's important to understand that our kids are kind of missing that. They don't really know how we're conducting our social lives. They're not answering the phone for us. They're not even getting that modeling that we got from just hearing our parents on the phone. So we need to spell out as much as we can what we're doing when we're texting and decisions that we're making around being social. Are you ready to unravel the myths surrounding screen time? discover practical strategies for fostering digital resilience, and gain a deeper understanding of the challenges and opportunities that technology presents for families in this modern world. I am thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Devorah Heitner. Dr. Heitner has a PhD in media technology and society, and she's the author of the books Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in the Digital World, and also ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. In today's episode, we'll share not just research-backed insights, but also real-world experiences for how parents can create a balanced approach to raising tech-savvy and emotionally intelligent kids. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hi, today we are talking with Dr. Devora Heitner. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm so happy to get to talk with you today. I'm happy to be here too. Yeah, so I would love, I mean, I feel like I have so many questions for you on behalf of like myself, but also like so many of the parents that I work with about how do we help support our kids who will be inevitably engaging with technology in a million different forms, many of which we are Luddites at, like don't know, don't understand. How do we support our kids to do this in a healthy way? Because it's here and we have to figure out how to live with it. Yes. I think that's a question that consumes so many parents because there's no, these things don't come with operating instructions, right? (laughs) Or if they do... It's like, it's not about our kids' development. It's just about, right, how to work the technology. (laughs) Yeah. And like, wouldn't that be amazing if like a Nintendo Switch came with like a developmental handbook? (laughs) It would be very helpful. But instead, we just have to kind of work with what we have, which is the advice from older, you know, parents of older kids, observing our kids, seeing how they respond to the stimuli and how it works for them. And also, you know, reading as much as we can about different games, watching sometimes gameplay videos on YouTube. I mean, there's a lot of ways in, but yeah, the Nintendo Switch is not that you, you know, give your kid is not going to come with a developmental guide. And in fact, you may have two or three kids and they'll all respond really differently to it. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I guess, like, how did you get into this particular area of of specialization? So I've been working on this for more than 10 years. I wrote my last book, ScreenWise, on this topic. I was teaching college before that. So I've really been focused on this for a long time. And when I was speaking, because I speak a lot at schools and corporations, and 
uh, when I was at schools in particular, a lot of parents would ask me, you know, how do we deal with the potential for things to go really sideways when kids maybe share things that they shouldn't or do things that are problematic? What can we do to help prevent that? And how can we, you know, make sure that we are supporting kids in our communities when things go wrong? And so I started researching what it's like for kids to grow up so surveilled and in public and, you know, so shared by their parents even. And it helped me to understand the way parents sometimes are helping, but also sometimes are actually contributing to the challenges kids experience. And that was really eye-opening. And so I, I spent a lot of time talking with parents, tweens, teenagers, you know, sometimes younger kids for growing up in public to just really understand what that universe looks like and try to help people come up with ways to help kids understand privacy, reputation, balance of tech use and unplugged time, all of those things. Yeah. You mentioned that you would see parents doing certain things that would help, but also doing certain things that might get in the way. Like what are some of the things that parents might, with the best of intentions, be doing that actually might actually not be serving their ultimate goal, which is to help their kid navigate this stuff in a healthy way? So there's a whole chapter of the book on sharenting and the ways parents are sharing about our kids. And even though I think you know, parents generally share about their kids on social media, of course, with good intentions and because we're just so in love with our kids and we kind of feel like we can't help ourselves and because everyone else is doing it, uh, we should be really thinking hard about what we share about our kids because we're taking away their control of their public identity and the ways the world sees them. So we need to be sure that we're being thoughtful about boundaries and that we're ideally asking permission before we share and that we're making sure that we don't share anything that in another developmental stage might be a problem. So I've talked to a lot of middle schoolers who get teased for things their parents have shared about them in the past, like when they were younger. And that stuff is still, you know, on the feed, for example, you know, a picture of a kid doing something really silly and adorable, which might seem really fun to share about your six-year-old might not be something you still want in their, in your timeline by the time your kid is 11, because if their classmates find it, they might tease them. And it's hard for parents to wrap their minds around that because we tend to think that anything we would share about our kids would just be positive, right? And the idea that like other sixth graders will tease your kid for something you shared a few years ago or even now is is hard to foresee. So we need to make sure that we're sharing, if we share at all about our kids, that we're doing it in a thoughtful way with good boundaries and that we're periodically checking in to think about, do I still want to be connected to these people online? Should I be sharing this much with these people? Should I be sharing with a smaller circle? Asking our kids permission for what we share about them sets them up with a really good habit because it it teaches them that they should be asking permission as well before they share friends and other things and that they have a right to say no. And that consent-based conversation is really great preparation for all kinds of boundaries in friendships and relationships that they'll have for the rest of their lives. Yeah, I think that's so, that's, you know, my head goes straight to like how much modeling is actually more important than like lecturing. (laughs) Like if you, you can tell your kid not to do, you know, to do a certain thing or not to do a certain thing, but if you're constantly contradicting that with your own actions, you're modeling something very specific actually, which is, you know, these, these rules don't actually apply all the time. And that that's a tricky message that sometimes we, we, if we were aware of it, we might double check if that's the one we want to be sending. Absolutely. I also wonder like one of the things, and I'm, I love your take on this because I'm, I'm about to say something that I'm also completely guilty of myself, but I recognize it as a potential thing that parents may do 
that they don't quite realize is maybe, you know, not in the best service of helping raise kids with a healthy relationship to tech is like our own kind of constant device use. Like I myself, for sure, without a doubt, am incredibly addicted to my phone. I'm on it way more than I want to be. It definitely rules a lot of my waking life and I hate it, but I also, it's, I'm, I'm very aware of how hard it is to let go of it. Um, and I know that my kids see me on my phone and I, so just for context, I have a four and a half and a six year old. Mm-hmm. And so they don't have phones. They're not even asking for phones. I mean, my four and a half year old daughter is definitely turning every single toy in the entire world into right. a phone. And she's very, very interested in phones, but she doesn't expect a phone at all um, right now. But I'm aware that I'm probably setting the tone in a way that if I were a little bit more thoughtful, I don't want that tone set. Like, I don't want that. I don't, if I, if my kids did on their phone, what I do on my phone, I would not be comfortable with that. Modeling is so crucial. If we can really model thoughtful use in front of our kids, including putting it away, maybe not sleeping with our devices, et cetera, you know, it's really helpful. Like when your four-year-old crawls into bed with you on a weekend morning, you know, and they're, if they're going over like a nest of chargers, (laughs) they're going to be like, oh, what grownups do is they sleep with their phones. Yeah. So what should we do? Help me. Well, I got to get out of this rut about, my phone. You know, if your toddler is constantly bringing you your phone because they know how important it is to you, we need to think about like, oh, could I go to the playground with them and leave my phone? Like I live in a densely populated area. Like I'm not going to be in a situation where, you know, I desperately need a phone and there's no one around with one. So I think it's important to think about like, could I just like leave this at home some of the time? Could I be with my kids reading to them and have my phone in another room, like turned off? Like, you know, what can I do to kind of be more present to my life, including taking breaks, um, making sure that we're using it in ways that are kid friendly. Mm -hmm. What are some of the kid friendly ways to use it? So for example, like a shared use, like you're looking at a video together or you're playing a game together and passing it back and forth, as opposed to like you're on your phone and your kid is just doing their own thing. Now I'm not saying adults should never let their kids just play. I'm not saying like every moment on the playground, for example, needs to be engaged at the same time. If they just see you checking out and not like, I would rather they see you like chatting with another parent, for example, on the playground versus just checking out and being on your phone because you want them to model that those related feelings and connections with others. And so when we're in the presence of others, say you're like sitting next to another parent at, at the park bench and you're all ignoring each other and on your phones, like, is that what we want to model for our kids? Or do we want them, like we're saying like, oh, why don't they play together more at recess? Well, what have we modeled, right? So I'm not mm-hmm. suggesting again that we need to be attending to our kids every second, but we should, when we're not attending to them, model other behaviors that we would want them to engage, like talking to other adults, yeah, or even just sitting and being. And being present, right? Just sitting and being present with our own thoughts. We don't need to fill every second, exactly. And we want them to know that it's okay to not fill every second. Yeah, I mean, I think this idea of we we do live in a culture where, you know, at least for grownups, it's like acceptable for grownups to think this way, but it's we. I think most adults wouldn't want their kids to think this way, but we do, we live in a culture where, um, it's very much 
acceptable and even sometimes con- like praised to be constantly productive, right? You don't mm-hmm. have negative space. You don't have white space. You should be filling it. If you have, if you're waiting online at the grocery store, you should be multitasking and getting those work emails responded to because, you know, and in some ways we've created this sort of prison for ourselves. We're like, we have to, because we have too much work to do in 24 hours. And so we, we have to do those things. And our phones become, you know, the vehicle by which we do it. So like, I'm not sitting on my phone, like scrolling Instagram when my kids are, you know, eating dinner, but I am checking my email sometimes. And if an important one comes through, I'm like, oh, at one sec, I've got to respond to this. But we also have really upped the ante, even on like what the expectation is from response mm-hmm. for response. And because our kids are seeing us text and they're not hearing us on the phone, they don't have the same information about our social worlds that we had about our parents' social world. Like I answered the phone all the time and, you know, mm-hmm. answered and got friends of my parents and, you know, other people that were calling, mostly my mother. My father didn't do a lot of social phone use. But it's important to understand that our kids are kind of missing that. They don't really know how we're conducting our social lives. They're not answering the phone for us. And we're also not interceding when their friends call, right? Which is something that a lot of parents of tweens feel very lost about because they don't know who's contacting their kids, which is something we can, you know, talk about is how can we mentor kids on like who to be in touch with and what who's okay to be in touch with. Yeah. But with little kids, they're not even getting that modeling that we got from just hearing our parents on the phone. So we need to spell out as much as we can, what we're doing when we're texting and decisions that we're making around being social. Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting point. Can you talk more about that? Sure. So for example, if there's news I don't want to share with someone when they're alone that I want to give them in person, I might make that decision, but I might want to spell that out for my 15 year old so that he can make decisions about like, oh, if I have big news or a big important conversation, maybe that's an in-person thing, not a texting thing. Yeah. It's almost like making the, the invisible visible. Like, mm-hmm. cause, cause yeah, I, I think about it. Like when my kids are watching me on my phone, I am looking at the screen and I know what I'm doing. <laughs> They're looking at me looking down and they see the back of my phone. They have no context for what I'm doing. So they don't know the, like. They're just watching us thumb out our lives. Yeah. Yeah. This is something that makes me very, you know, I have lots of mixed feelings about my own phone use, but I'm, I just think I'm at a place right now where I actually have to just bite the bullet and do something about it because I, I know that I, I know that this is an area personally where like, I, I know I struggle a lot with this and it's becoming, as my kids get older, I just can't, I can't brush it away anymore. Like, you know. I often would just be like, you know, if they're not eventually I'll have to deal with this. And I think it's, it's, it's upon me. I have to deal with it. Yeah. If you were going to give advice to me, like what, where would you suggest I start? Yeah. I think it's really important and it doesn't, it's, it's also something you shouldn't feel bad about because the devices have been designed to be really hard to put down and the pandemic kind of got us all like extra glued and having little kids can be isolating So it's a way to stay connected. Like all of those things are true. Like it's not like something, and this is the thing why I think we struggle to talk to other parents about kids in tech sometimes is because we've been so sort of, you know, shamed about our own screen time or our kids' screen time that we're like scared to even talk about it because we feel like there's something wrong Mm -hmm. with us because we're using tech. But 
instead, if we can just look at our habits, honestly, like we'd look at any other habits and say like, Oh, like, how do I want to get more steps in a day? You know, like, Oh, can I just like park further away when I go to the library or whatever? <laughs> like it's, you know, it doesn't always have to be this like huge thing to scale, but I think it's important mm-hmm. to think about what does my tech use look like? And is there like one time in particular, like maybe I don't want to look at my phone before I've had my coffee in the morning, or maybe I don't want to, whatever it is, like, what can I do differently that just like one small habit change that might lead me and my family to feel, you know, better, more connected. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think ultimately our bigger goal is greater connection and like, that that's something I also think about, obviously, with me, my own use and how it gets in the way of me connecting with my kids. But that modeling, right? Like I want my kids to value connection. And so I'm also aware though, because I work with a lot of much older kids or parents with older kids in my practice, many of whom have phones and are figuring this stuff out. And there's a lot of ways that kids really do their social worlds rely more and more on communication through devices. And it's interesting because on the one hand, I think it's helpful to allow kids to have access to that world because they want to feel connected and that's where the connection Mm -hmm. is happening. And so one is like, how do we do that in a way that is developmentally appropriate and helps them feel like they've got tools to navigate that? On the other side of that question, though, is how do we support them getting off their phones and doing that connection in person? Because I think that's harder for them to come by and we might have to facilitate that. Sometimes I make my kid leave the house. I'm like, I don't care if you see a friend, go for a walk, go to the library by yourself, but you have to leave the house. (laughs) Or sometimes, you know, I might say like, I really want you to think about the balance of like how much you're gaming by yourself versus others online versus seeing friends in person and just think about like, what does your weekend look like? And kind of try to make a balance and let him think about it for himself, you know, because I think it's important for kids to also have autonomy and make decisions, but think about what brings them joy and like what, you know, a lot of us think that we're getting joy out of our online connections, but when we really think about what brings us joy in a given week, it's probably more of our in-person hanging out time. So for some of us, it might be time on, you know, Discord or in, in an online community as well. Or I have a like bi-weekly Zoom that really is brings me joy. So I'm not saying online can't. I'm just saying we really need to look at it because sometimes we think something is bringing us joy and it's not. Yeah. Yeah. And I think our kids are maybe also can sometimes struggle to identify that because they mm-hmm. don't, there aren't, it's not like there's this rich everyone's hanging out in the quad, you know, like that's not, I don't know if that's happening as much anymore. And, and so it's like a child might want to. I think that schools, colleges need to think more about that. Like colleges definitely need to think more about that. Yeah. Even what about like high schools and middle schools? Are you seeing that still be something that exists? High schools and middle schools as well. Like unplugging kids at recess and lunch can be really important. Some schools are, you know, banning cell phones and I don't know if that's the way to go, but I do think the schools that are banning cell phones are partly doing it for a reason, you know, for this reason. Mm-hmm. Do you find that that's been successful in those schools? We're not far enough in to know. I think teachers are saying that it's helpful. 
Um, certainly I know many high schools just have, you know, individual teachers have policies in their classrooms, but the high school doesn't, I think it's quite difficult to do, but I think the schools that have done it, I, I haven't heard anyone say it's been a disaster. And many of them say that parents are the ones who are pushing back because they want to be able to reach their kids during the day. And I think that's worth rethinking because if you are reaching out to your kid regularly during the day, it's very distracting for them at school. And I think a lot of parents think they won't do that, but, um, you know, people have anxiety and understandably, especially in these recent years with so much going on. And it's, it's very understandable, but it's also important that we don't bother our kids when they're in school and focusing on school and learning. Yeah. I'm wondering too, like talking about kids having devices, whether it's at school or elsewhere, like how, what are things that parents want to consider before they before they, as they're trying to figure out, is my kid ready for this? And and what is like a typical stepwise introduction that you recommend for introducing devices and within those devices, further access to certain types of media platforms? I think it's, it's important to observe how your kid does in digital communities and in-person communities and notice like, are they impulsive? Are they struggling with, you know, winning and losing in games? Like, and just noticing that, like before your kid gets into like Roblox or even like seeing how your kid did in Roblox or the classroom, you know, Google community in like third grade. And that's going to tell you a lot about how they're going to do in the group text in sixth grade and like what skills they need to work on kind of interpersonally, or maybe it's being patient about waiting for a response. Like what are the skills that your kid needs to thrive in these situations? And by the way, like making a lot of mistakes is typical and expected. So I'm not saying like, if you observe your kid making a mistake, like yelling too loud at a friend playing Roblox, that means they can't play Roblox anymore, but it's just information to be like, how is this going? Where do they need support? You know, how can, how can they be helped? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And once you've identified a skill deficit, Mm -hmm. are there any suggestions you have for how to build up that skill? Well, I mean, I think, you know, if, if your family is working with a therapist, like you, obviously like asking them, if you, if you feel less, like if your kid is impulsive or they're saying things that are harming their friendships, but again, like a lot of that is pretty typical. So I would really, if you're not sure if, if something your kid is going through is kind of beyond what's sort of developmentally expected, that would be a good time to ask their teacher. There's a school counselor, a mental health professional. Um, Yeah to just to get that perspective because so much of what we're talking about is kind of expected developmentally. Speaking of what's expected, because I think most parents, we, it's like, if you're parenting, you know, chances are nine times out of 10, the stuff that your kids are, you know, going to be exposed to, we, we don't have a framework for, from our own childhood. Mm -hmm. Right. So especially like with, in terms of tech, right. So what are some typical tech milestones, you know, that you would, that we need to be aware of, like when's the, when, what are the ages? What's, what do we we do when? We see kids getting into gaming communities pretty young. So that's like Minecraft, Roblox, et cetera. And a lot of parents maybe don't understand fully that like on a public server, kids can talk to strangers. So it's very important that they have a framework for knowing who to talk to, what to do if something somebody asks them a too personal question or if somebody's being mean in that space. Now, if it's a friend, that's a different resolution. But if it's a stranger, you know, one option would just be get out of the conversation, right? If it's a friend, you want to kind of have the skills to work it out. But it's very important to talk with kids and, and ideally observe them. So if your kid is playing Roblox, maybe they're playing with no headphones and they're in the room with you so that you can 
observe how it's going. Um, and that's going to be a really good kind of gift to know like, okay, I see that, you know, you're not responding to losing in a very happy way. Like how, how can we help you? Like what, you know, one thing with gaming is helping kids by helping them reground in their body, whether that's a deep breath, glass of water, running around the block, doing a push up, like anything that regrounds you in the body can help kind of slow down the brain to the speed of regular life. So that could be helpful with Mm -hmm. the next thing is often texting or kids will even want to get on their school devices and connect with classmates in a Google document, or some kids might be getting watches in middle elementary school, like third, fourth grade. Some kids are getting phones in fourth and fifth grade. Um, Certainly by middle school, a lot of kids will have phones. And so the question of how to navigate a group text in fifth, sixth, or seventh grade will come up. That's kind of another milestone. Ideally, maybe they've practiced texting on a parental device, you know, before this time, but that's not always the case. Um, But ideally, if there's an opportunity to practice uh, texting or practice with just one friend, it's very important if kids get a first phone, which is another milestone that they know who they can and can't be in contact with. So you don't want them just giving their phone number, for example, to just anyone. If they're allowed to be on social media or YouTube or TikTok, those are all kind of other spaces. So I would say like that first gaming community, the first time they're in the school Google Doc, those are two kind of early milestones. And then the next one is texting, which would be maybe on a first phone or a watch. And then the next set of milestones could be either social media, Discord, YouTube, or TikTok, all of which are different ways of relating. So social media would be something like Instagram or TikTok and anything where your kid is posting about themselves is kind of next level. So ideally they're getting used to texting first, um, which is a little less public and then maybe learning how to do social media at some point. Yeah. And in terms of like even getting more granular, like, you know, I'm thinking of like, okay, Roblox, Minecraft, these are like this early exposure um, younger kids are doing this. Obviously older kids do this too, but like there are younger kids on this. Would you necessarily allow, like what kind of restrictions do you think can be helpful? Cause my thought would be even more of like an internal step process inside of each of these platforms, right? Like, so if you're going to be doing Roblox, you're like having some parental controls. So they have less access to like a stranger. There's no real way to do that on a lot of these games, though. So I think it's really important to understand that if you are going to allow your kid to play on a public server, they're on a public server. With Minecraft, you can build a server just for your child and their friends, or they could join, for example, your local library or your school might have a a Minecraft server just for that community. Roblox, there's no way to do that. Um, So you have to decide if you want your kid to play Roblox. I made a decision early on that we didn't want to do Roblox until my kid was a little older. And we did use a Nintendo Switch from your example earlier, which you have a tremendous amount more control over as a parent. So that was our decision. We did eventually allow Roblox. um, So it's not that we never did it, but a lot of people are doing Roblox much younger than we did. I think it really depends on your kid how comfortable you are, you know, what your kid will do if they're faced with problematic content. Occasionally Roblox has, you know, people have run into things like porn and other things. So, you know, it's not common, um, but anything that's open, an open-ended architecture that strangers are using, you know, someone can go in and actually change the code. That's not going to happen if your kid's playing Zelda uh, or Mario Kart on Nintendo Switch. Like you buy the cartridge, you get what you got. 
and you only play with others if you share your code with them. So that's a very different world where, you know, you and your child have a little more control. Yeah. Which is something to consider. Like I think I was working, you know, I, I, I've worked with a number of families who have actually introduced a Nintendo Switch as a way to get off of more internet server based things. And yeah, like it's been, it get, it allows them to have a little bit more parental control. Exactly. So I think that could be really smart and you could, your kid can still play with their friends. It's just, you know, the, the easy and hard thing about Roblox, for example, is it's so ubiquitous. It's sort of everywhere, right? You don't have to like bring anything with you at the same time. Yes, your kid can be with whomever, and that may not be what you want for your seven-year-old. You have to really look at, do I have a kid who would know what to do in that situation if I help them be ready for it? Like no kid will know what to do if you don't help them, but there are kids who will kind of forget or again, are either more impulsive or more vulnerable or more sort of, you know, easily led and other kids are do pretty well. And obviously they can meet their friends there. Like they can say, let's all go and meet in Roblox at, you know, three o'clock after school or whatever. Um, and then ideally, you know, you can have a conversation with, um, other parents that your kid is playing with and maybe, you know, come up with some strategies to, you know, keep things positive, but as kids get older, you won't be able to do that. But with little kids, that's, that's an option. Yeah. Okay. So then we've graduated up to maybe we're talking and texting and chatting in like, whether it's. Google Doc or like a group text or, you know, other types of ways of that? Like, is this where you're starting to see like cyberbullying happening and like, uh, you know, kids oh, really, I mean, not even just bullying, know, but just exclusion and inclusion. I mean, all of this sort of developmentally typical things that happen in middle school will happen on the group text, whether your kid is in, you know, sixth grade, seventh grade, by eighth grade, it may be calming down. It may be shrinking as well. Like the scope tends to shrink by eighth grade, ninth grade. And then people really aren't group texting in the major ways anymore. But like sixth grade is when you'll see like half the grade on a text or, you know, and it's quite exhausting and kids both know that it's annoying and feel like it's distracting from other things they care about. And they know people aren't being nice or that a lot of people are just texting emojis and like kind of pinging them and it's annoying but they don't want to be off of it because they don't want to miss what's going on with others. So that's an interesting sort of lens, right? Because again, this is the goal of this whole conversation is not to like dissuade people from kind of one direction or the other. It's more like wherever you're at, how do you look at it from a lens of like, okay, I want an, I want a, I want an informed sort of tech savvy kid who understand sort of who's doing what and why, mm -hmm. like this sort of like being an educated consumer of this kind of material. So if you have a kid who's doing these text exchanges, I guess one of the things I would think of is like, how do we help them have healthy boundaries, not just like within like, you know, in interpersonal communication and that sort of thing, but also just in terms of like with mm -hmm. the, with my engagement, like how do I be able to say like, this is, there's this constant flow of chatter and it's very, you know, alluring, magnetic, and I could go in and I could get lost in it. And like, how do I ba balance that out with other things I want to do? How do I know, how do I set boundaries with my, with my engagement with the, the chat, 
but then also inside the chat in terms of like engaging with the content of the chat and the ways that people are speaking to each other, how do I have healthy boundaries there? You mean as a parent, like not to over, over read, like you don't want to read all the seventh graders texts. I think it's important instead of like to have healthy boundaries by letting your kid know they can come to you, but that you're not going to like read the text proactively. And, but I would also let them know that somebody's parents probably are, especially in sixth grade. And it's just good for them to keep that in mind that some parents are probably reading the whole thing. So you're, I'm thinking in terms of, I was thinking in terms of how do I teach my kid to have their own boundaries? Like if someone's saying something mean, how do I engage with that in a skillful way? Okay. You know, if I'm feeling hurt, how do I talk about that? But also I'm hearing, and maybe we should go there to like parents having boundaries with their own kid and being able to say, you're going to have to, I'm going to let you have some space to figure this out. Yeah. I think it's really important to navigate with our kids, what they would do, like what's a situation where they would maybe leave the group text, for example, like if people were being mean or unkind or, you know, if they felt like they just weren't comfortable with what was going on. And for younger kids, they can use you as one boundary, like, oh, my parents look at my phone. I'm, I'm going to get in trouble for this. Like, I don't want to be part of this. Another thing they can do is navigate, um, you know, like change the subject. And a lot of kids use that strategy. Like, you know, like I don't want to be going there. If they think that it's a conversation that's so problematic that somebody might get in trouble for it, it's worth knowing that they probably do want to leave that conversation because someone might screenshot it and like show it to the principal. Um, They can certainly interject also with an individual. And it's important for kids to know that say there's a group text with 60 people on it or 20 people, whatever, and someone's being mean, you can go to someone in front of everyone, but most people double down when they're called out in public. So something we can do is also go to them privately and talk to them in person, or at least text them privately and say, Hey, I think that person would be really hurt if they heard that, or I'm not comfortable with what this is going, or if somebody's being mean directly to your kid, you know, your kid can try setting a boundary with that person individually. Like, Hey, I don't use that nickname. That's not okay with me. Um, please stop calling me that right now. If that person ignores your child's attempt to, you know, put in a boundary, put in place a boundary, I would just say at a certain point, yeah, your kid may want to get out of that group text. They may want to cut off digital contact with that kid. That wouldn't be the first thing I would do, right? A lot of fifth graders and sixth graders will like block somebody the second they annoy them. Well, they're all 11. They're going to be annoying sometimes. Like if some, if you sit with somebody at lunch and like 80, you have an 80, 20 situation, which a lot of friends in middle school are like 80, 20, like 80% of the time you like them, 20% of the time they make you nuts. Like that's not a situation where you block that person and you block their phone number. You know what I mean? Like it has to be like, this person is intentionally hurting me. They're not stopping. They're not listening to my boundaries. Like we've talked to school, whatever, like then maybe, yeah, you block them, you change your number, whatever you have to do. But you're not there yet if your friend is just being annoying some of the time to you, right? So I think it's important to teach kids skills, including letting someone know what they're doing that's bothering you because sometimes kids really don't know and your kid may be more socially savvy than the kid that's bothering them. But if if you haven't told the friend, hey, when you text me 60 times between 6 and 6.30, like I'm meeting dinner, just like don't do that, right? Like let the friend know and err on the side of being explicit and clear, because sometimes, you know, you, you, you don't want to be in a situation where like you're saying to your, you know, someone saying to your kid, like, if you don't know what's bothering me about your behavior, then I'm not going to tell you. It's like, no, tell me, 
right? And I think we want to tell our kids like, look, we're all making mistakes. You're all learning, right? So I do want to say we want to give other kids the benefit of the doubt. Now, again, if somebody's telling your kid something horrible and mean, and there's no, there's no doubt, <laughs> that's a different scenario than mm-hmm. somebody's just being annoying and texting a lot of emojis when you're trying to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a huge range of boundary issues with kids. And I just want to say like a lot of times kids will immediately react with something like blocking someone. And I think that can be an overreaction that doesn't help them all move forward. Absolutely. It's it's funny because as you're talking, I'm like, oh, this sort of is an opportunity to teach social skills like in vivo, which as I, most like my parents didn't really get a chance to do that because I was like not at home when it was happening because I was in person, like with the people, you know, whereas like are these kids, they're having these, they're literally in the living room, you know, right there with us while these things are going on. And like, maybe they're not sharing that with us, but Hey, yeah. I mean, it happens like, for example, like Roblox again, as much as like, you know, we can bash Roblox and say like what we don't like about it. When you hear your kid playing, you can be like, okay, I get that everybody's trash talking a little in the game, but I think your friend got a little bit hurt when this got said, you know what I mean? So maybe like, that's not a place to go again or whatever. Like, did you hear how things changed when that came up or whatever? And that's really helpful for kids. Right. And again, we don't want to give them a play by play. Like we don't know. We probably don't have time to, nor should we listen to every conversation our child has with peers. But, and, and I'm going to say too, especially like if you have a kid who's struggling socially, like you probably have some idea that that's happening and that may be a kid who would benefit more from more support or maybe a social group or other things. Um, But most kids could use some feedback, right? On like how they're, you know, how they could be more supportive or noticing like, Hey, I heard somebody say something mean to you. Like, how are you feeling about it? Like, don't over, you know, cause we don't always know how our kids are reacting to what's being said to them. Right. And I'm, I'm even thinking in much the same way that with like really little kids who are having difficulty with social skills or like having anxiety around social situations or more explosive or just, just having, just struggling there. One of the things that I'll often suggest is like a play date, right? Sort of a therapeutic play date, not really therapeutic, but like in quotes, like sort of a pseudo therapeutic play date where it's like, I'm going to identify like the strongest kid. I know the kid who's, who's the kid in this, in my kid's class who has like, like really good skills. They're like really kind of up there. The bar is high. I'm going to want it to be something like structured and supervised and short and sweet, right? Like those are really great play dates. And I kind of am like in my head imagining a really similar scenario with like, if I have a kid who's struggling to kind of figure out how to navigate certain social situations or they're feeling left out, or maybe they're a little bit too volatile and they're the ones that are kind of getting hot fast and saying the mean things, right? That's all, like, as you said, developmentally pretty typical, but Hey, there's a skill that I've identified. I want to help them work through. Right using something like Roblox could be like with your support, like, Hey, we're going to, I'm going to let's play a game and let's invite some friends and play a game. And I'm going to, they don't have to tell them you're going to like live coach them, but in the back of your mind, you might be giving them some support, but it's, you're engaging with them in it. And it's an opportunity to like kind of learn. A hundred percent. Do you see that happen? Like, are you plugged into anybody who's using Roblox almost like I've seen people do it with Dungeons and Dragons, but that's more of a live role-playing game, but I've seen people do that online, but I, I haven't, um, I guess I haven't seen 
as much with video games, but I think it could work. And I'm sure there's like people out there in, you know, like SLPs or social workers or other people probably doing that. But um, because my research is a little bit in a different space, I don't know of them, but I think it could be really a good opportunity. Well, if anybody's listening that does this therapeutically, email me because I'm curious because I want to learn more about that. A hundred percent. But yeah. Yeah. So, okay. We talked about, you know, the earlier tech milestones, but we, then we talk, we haven't talked about social media necessarily. And I think that's a really important one, which is like, if our kids are ready for social media, first of all, what are we looking for in terms of readiness for that? How do we introduce it in an appropriate way with initial, like, again, like breaking down into more granular steps, those, the layers of access, like parental controls, private accounts, um, how do we, do we get a say in who they're initially going to be, you know, connected to? At what point do we pull that back? I think it's really important that by, we understand that like by the middle of high school, by the time our kids are like driving, for example, they're going to be largely in charge of this themselves. And they're going to have like, you know, for many of them, like one foot out the door. Um, and we're not going to like come to their college dorm and, you know, take away their phones at night so they can sleep. But They certainly need a lot of support regulating in the elementary school, middle school, and early high school years. And then I will kind of see how it's going. Like the more concerned you are about your kid, obviously, the more you may want to externally regulate and make a plan for them going forward with them going forward. Um, But with old kids, I would be trying to work with them to make that plan. And certainly, I mean, in elementary school, your kids shouldn't have contacts that you or another co-parent doesn't know. In middle school, they're going to start to have, you know, contacts that you don't know. They're going to like join a team and be with kids you don't know. I mean, I moved to where we live now during the pandemic with my kids. So I think in particular, we're in a new community. I don't know all the parents of the kids he went to middle school with. And then he started high school. I certainly won't know those kids necessarily, all of them, unless they come to my house. Right. And so that's a very different situation than elementary school where there shouldn't really be anyone in your kids like phone list of contacts where you're like, who's that? And you're and they tell you and you're like, oh, I have no idea who that is. Right. Again, as your kid gets older, their world is going to expand. Mm-hmm. And it's supposed to, and that's okay. And I think right, that's, it can that's be really positive. scary for parents. That's good. We don't want to limit our kids. Yeah. But then, okay, so we're giving them access. We're trusting them. We're helping them to build the skills. I'm really curious too, like how do you help parents help their kids understand some of like the permanence of their digital footprint and how to navigate kind of like, I feel like there's a bit of a, it's chess, not checkers. You know what I mean? Like you got to think five steps ahead, not one when you're posting because the stuff can be forever out there and you know, that can hurt us. So as we think about the permanence of what our kids share, it's easy to get into, into the negative side of it and say like, oh, you'll never get into Princeton or whatever. If you share that And it's much more important to focus on, is this aligned with who you are? Do you feel like if someone saw this about you, they would get the wrong idea about who you are, what kind of person you are? Um, And I think that's, that's just more important because when we threaten kids with like, you'll never get a job if you share that or whatever, it actually gives kids, I believe, the wrong set of incentives. We're saying to kids in that case, don't get caught. Right. We're not saying be a good person. We're saying don't get caught. And that's really not a message we want to give kids. 
I think that is such a valuable piece of advice. This idea that like helping them identify what their values are and have that be the lens through which they make decisions and weigh out pros and cons. Um, and cause that's so much more salient to them. They have a lot more stake in their sort of identity and how other people perceive them and how they want to show up in the world. That is really motivating to them. And to help activate that part of them that is motivated to think about that and think about their actions through that lens is like, that's a life skill that we could build from day one with our kids. And so I think that's so, so valuable. Thank you. That's great. If people want to learn more about the work that you do, if they want to read your books, where can they find you? So my books are everywhere. Books are sold, you know, all the online places and your local bookstore and your library. And my website, devoraheitner.com is a great place if you want to bring me to speak, if you just want to like see pithy things that I'm saying, hopefully um, Instagram where I'm Devora Heitner PhD. And then I also have a Substack, Devora Heitner on Substack. So those are all the places you can find me. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. And I really appreciated this conversation. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I hope that you have great conversations and you know, don't beat yourself too much up about your f- phone use. Just try to like change those little habits one by one. Um, another person you might want to talk to is Catherine Price who wrote um, how to break up with your phone. That might be a fun one for you. Mm. Oh, maybe she'll come on the podcast and tell me what yeah, I could do. That would be a great follow-up. Thank you. Have a great day. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, I want to hear from you. Share your thoughts and your feedback with me by scrolling down to the ratings and review section on your Apple podcast app or whatever app you're listening on. And let me know what you think of this episode or the show in general. Your support means the absolute world to me. And just a simple tap of five stars can make a real impact in how this show gets reached by parents everywhere. So thank you so much for listening and don't be a stranger.